Well, good morning. <clears throat> I am so happy to be here. I can't believe it's been eight years since we were here. Uh, Katie was with me the last time. She's not with me this time. I miss her, but uh, thank you for the invitation. We have three daughters. We have 11 grandchildren, and I've got to tell you about the most recent. Caleb was born about 10 days ago, and he has Down syndrome. This is grandchild 11, and I think will be the last, but he's in, in cardiac intensive care in the Children's Hospital in Chicago. Pretty dramatic story. We're living with him, but a welcome, Caleb Nathaniel. Uh, I'm thinking of him this morning. Revival. Revive. The word, the root, vive, means life. Re, attached to the front of that, means again. Bring to life again. To have a revival makes the assumption that there was a time when we were alive. <laughs> but maybe we need to come alive again. Isn't that a great concept? Uh, Lord, bring life back. Not the way it used to be. Frankly, the way it used to be was problematic. But Lord, bring life like it ought to be so that the church can be what it ought to be. I'd love to talk to you about the difference between revival and reformation. Reformation. Uh, but we're not going to talk about that this morning. But I'd love to talk privately about whether the church needs reviving or reforming. Oh my goodness, that's a great question. Or both. Maybe you heard the story of the old country farmer who had never been to the city, but he finally one day got a chance to go to the city and had his son with him, grown son. They went in this lobby of a hotel and the old farmer had never seen an elevator and he saw these silver doors glide open and shut and he sat there and watched a while and there was an old sort of decrepit grandma hunched over overweight she hobbled with her cane she went in those double doors they closed he stood there a minute and watched and out stepped a 20 year old blonde curvaceous woman the farmer said to his son, boy, go get your mother. <laughs> Don't you wish transformation was that easy? I wish I could tell you God's got some magic doors. And if you come to these services, you're going to go in and you're going to come out, poof. A dramatic transformation. I think God can do that. I don't think he does that in that way very often, but I do know this. He wants to make us new creations in Christ Jesus, and he wants to do a transforming work in our hearts, not in the lives of those who aren't here this morning, but in our hearts, in our hearts. I have a urologist a urologist whose name, are you ready, is Dr. Grimm. 
I told him one day, you deserve your name. <laughs> Dr. Grimm, what a great name for a urologist. He's about the most cheerful, smiling, happy guy I know. But let me tell you, I don't enjoy visits with Dr. Grimm. He pokes and prods, tells me to take my clothes off, asks me questions that nobody's ever asked in my entire life. But yet, Dr. Grimm may have saved my life. A few years back, he found prostate cancer. We had some interventions, and to my knowledge, it's all taken care of. I love Dr. Grimm. I also love his name. <laughs> I think that's what revival is. Jesus is the great physician. I don't like to think of him as a urologist, <laughs> but I do think of him as a cardiologist. But let me tell you this, when you have an appointment with Dr. Jesus, he's going to poke, he's going to prod, he's going to ask you to take all your clothes off. He's going to ask you questions that nobody else would dare to ask. And you may find, I don't know if I like an appointment with Dr. Jesus, but I want to encourage you to hang in there because he may find cancer of the soul. He may find something that's so deadly going on right now in your heart that you're completely unaware of, like I was with my condition, completely unaware, oblivious. And if it's not treated, it may prove mortal. So I want to invite you this morning, tonight, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night to keep your appointment with Dr. Jesus. Expect some discomfort. You haven't really been to the doctor unless you've experienced some discomfort. But know that he has your spiritual well-being. In fact, he has your whole well-being in mind. We're going to look this morning to kick things off. We really kicked things off at Sunday school. And if you weren't there, you missed a really good sermon this morning. First um, Kings chapter 18. Elijah, the prophet, on Mount Carmel with a face-to-face -face standoff with 850 state clergy persons. <laughs> I choose my words. One man versus 850. And when the story begins, all of Israel is apostate, lost, lost in sin, worshiping idols. But when the story begins, the entire nation of Israel is on their face before God saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. We're going to talk this morning about revival. 
and why revival needs to come and how revival comes. What strikes me about 1 Kings 18 is how similar the condition of Israel was in the 9th century B.C. and the condition of America in the 21st century A.D. I mean, it's like parallel tracks. The government is corrupt. The culture is immoral. The church is asleep. And the barbarians are at the gates. Welcome to 21st century America. I don't know if you like poetry. William Butler Yeats, a hundred years ago, wrote a poem as he looked at the 20th century. Pretty rough century. Actually, a century that I know better than the century I currently live in. I know the 20th century. I grew up in the 20th century. William Butler Yeats wrote this poem, Things Fall Apart. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. I don't know what you think and what you feel when you look at what's going on in our world today, but at 68 years of age, I never remember a time that was more serious, more frightening than this. Racism, gender confusion, inability to define marriage, immorality, pornography, violence, political divisions that can't even speak to one another. This leads me to 1 Kings 18 and what happened on Mount Carmel. Do you have your Bibles there with you? I'm actually going to begin reading in chapter 16, beginning at verse 29, just to set the context for where we're going. Genesis 16, beginning at verse 29. In the, thir- in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab. Just say that word Ahab with me. Ahab. I want you to remember him. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. I mean, this was a bad dude, the worst of the worst. And if it had been as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel. Say that word with me, Jezebel. How many of you named one of your daughters Jezebel? I suppose there are people who do. 
But this is a gal who was so wicked, basically after she died, nobody ever wanted to name their kid Jezebel ever again in history. Ahab and Jezebel are in the Oval Office. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. This is Israel. This is not Babylon. This is not Egypt. This is not Rome. This is the people of God. On the throne, Ahab and Jezebel worshiping Baal. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. So you have the context. You've got evil on the throne. Things were bad in Washington. And I don't mean there was just gridlock. I don't mean they just couldn't get things done. I mean there was evil in the palace. Chapter 17, verse 1. Here's our hero. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So the prophet of the true God comes and says there's going to be drought. Because there's evil in the land, the Lord is sending drought. The drought has already lasted six months, but it's going to last three and a half years. Now, in the ancient Near East, that's a death sentence. No rain for three and a half years. You just simply can't survive. God is trying to get their attention. Now, this is interesting because the God they worship, Baal, it's the God of the thunderstorm, the God of thunder, the God of rain. So you see, God wants Israel to understand that the God you're wor currently worshiping is impotent to save you. That's so good, I'm going to say it again. God wants his people who are worshiping other gods, if revival is going to come, they first got to learn that the gods they're currently looking to for help can't help them at all. That makes me both want to say amen and say, Lord, that's terrifying all at the same time. If revival is going to come to our land, our land, and our church, and our families are going to have to learn that the gods we're currently bowing before are impotent. Call on your God. Let him save you. Call on Baal. Let him bring the rain. How's that working out for you? Now, chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. After many days, three and a half years, 
The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain. So they call all the people together on Mount Carmel. And let me read you the story. It's a lengthy passage, but it's so good. I don't know what to leave out. I'm going to read the whole thing. It starts at verse 17. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel, you little preacher who just drives me crazy in the palace? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. In other words, they're on the state payroll. They get, they're part of civil service. These are play, clergy persons paid by the government, 850 of them. It's pretty dramatic. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. In other words, you can't make up your mind. You say you worship the true God, but you worship the false God. So stop limping between two opinions. Make up your mind. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the altar, and put no fire on it. <clears throat> and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. You call on the name of your God, Baal, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire is the true God. This is really good. And all the people said, that's a really good idea. That's a really, really good idea. The God who answers by fire, either the thunderstorm God or the God of Israel. He's the real God. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you were many. And call on the name of your God. Put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, I'm not enough of a dramatist to read this the way it ought to be read, but listen to their prayer. 450, 850 prophets praying to Baal, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice Nobody answered, and they limped around the altar they had made. Do you hear the sanctified sarcasm 
coming through. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry louder. He's God. Maybe he's musing, or maybe he's relieving himself. <laughs> maybe Baal's in the bathroom. I love sanctified sarcasm. I've asked God to give me that gift. In the world we live in, I think we need preachers who know how to use sarcasm to expose the idiocy, the irrationality, the folly of worshiping gods who can't save. Maybe Baal's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a vacation. Cry louder. Or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on and on until the time for the offering of the evening oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, nobody paid attention. I love the Word of God. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. Ooh, that needs a sermon right there. Somebody needs to repair the Lord's altar. That had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars full of water and pour it on the burnt offering of the wood. He wants there to be no mistake here. And he said, do it a second time. And they poured the water a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and filled the trench with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near. And he said, listen to his prayer. O Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, that's the God I'm praying to. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O God, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell. I don't know what Steven Spielberg would do with a movie like this, but this has got to be one of the most dramatic moments in the history of God's people. When at the prayer of the prophet, the fire, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the fire consumed the burnt offering and the wood, 
and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. You have any questions? <laughs> and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. When the story begins, the nation is living in flagrant, willful, continual apostasy. When the story ends, Israel is on their face. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. I want to suggest to you this morning, this story is in Scripture, not just because it's history. It is history. It's very interesting history. This story is in Scripture because it's also prophetic. It is letting us know what God wants to do when all hell is broken loose in the world we live in. What I want to do with you, I don't, you told me I could preach as long as I wanted to this morning. That's pretty dangerous. I, I'm, I respect time. Don't be alarmed. I want to talk about this morning the question, you know you need revival if... And if somebody says, that reminds me of Jeff Foxworthy, you're right. You know you're a redneck if, remember those silly speeches? You know you need a revival if. And this is how I want to start our time together. Number one, you know you need a revival if, I've got six points. You know you need a revival if there's drought famine in the land. Three and a half years without water, without food, and Israel was thirsty. They were so thirsty, they didn't know they were thirsty. You know, there's a point in famine when you become so famished, you don't even know you're hungry anymore. The prophet Amos spoke of a time that was coming. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine for bread, not a thirst for water, but a famine for hearing the words of God. Amos 8, verse 11. Whether you're aware of it or not, or not, our nation, our world is in famine conditions. Not famine for bread or water, but famine for hearing the word, the unadulterated, pure word of God. Everywhere I go, I find God's people are famished. Many of them go to good churches. 
but they're not hearing the word of God. If you're thirsty today, if you're hungry today, if you're longing today for God to open the windows of heaven and send rain, you know you need a revival when you're dehydrated, when the sheep are hungry. When I get hungry, I get grumpy. <laughs> I get the grumpies. And sometimes when I walk in the house and I'm grumpy, Katie will look at me and say, oh, go eat something. <laughs> I'll eat a candy bar. And the grumpies, the grumpies go away. Do you know why the church today is so grumpy? Because they're hungry. Because they're famished for the word. They're thirsty. You know you need a revival if there's famine in the land. Secondly, you know you need a revival if there's evil on the throne. Ahab and Jezebel. Oh, my goodness. It does not get worse than that in the history of Israel. Ahab and Jezebel. In the book of Revelation, the risen Christ wrote a letter to the church of Thyatira. And he told Thyatira the good things they had done, and then he said this, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now you read the commentaries and there's all kind of speculation. What, what does that mean? We all know that it wasn't good when the church tolerates Jezebel. You know you need a revival when there's not just gridlock, when there's not just incompetence in government, dare I say it, when there's evil. Evil. I love the way you're looking at me right now because you realize the power of this kind of thinking. This is why we need revival. This is precisely why we need it. I remember a Promise Keepers event. I, had, I think it was in Washington, D.C. at RFK Stadium, and E.V. Hill was preaching. Oh, my goodness, that man can preach. He's a black Baptist pastor from Los Angeles. He's in heaven now. But he was preaching, and he said something like this to 58,000 men. There was a lot of testosterone in that stadium, let me tell you. He said something like this. This is a black pastor. He said, don't put your hope in the right wing. Don't put your hope in the left wing. The bird is dead. <laughs> And the stadium erupted with hallelujahs, praise the Lord, because God's people need to be reminded the solution is not in Washington. The solution is not in politics. 
In fact, that's part of the problem. God's people need to be God's people. And that is profoundly subversive. I choose my words. It's profoundly revolutionary. I got to tell you a story. I'm not watching my clock, so this is a good one. I was pastor in Albany, New York for 18 years. Our church building was about four miles from the Capitol building of New York State. Now, New York State is not exactly part of the Bible Belt. You may have heard that. And George Barna, a few years ago, conducted a survey of what he called post-Christian cities in America. And on his list of post-Christian cities, Albany, New York, was number one. And I had the privilege of pastoring there. And I, I could not be more honest when I say the privilege of pastoring there. Well, one day as pastor, I got a letter. I think it was a stamped letter. Remember those days when you actually got letters? And it said, Dear Reverend Key, you're invited to pray over the New York State Senate. I said, oh my goodness, pray in the Senate? And then it said, I hesitated, and then at the bottom of the letter it said, if you accept this invitation, you'll receive $35 of pay for your services. I said, okay, it's worth $35, I'll go. Well, the day came, and I went into the state house, and I began to ask myself, why did I say yes to this? I don't think I've ever been more intimidated in my life as I began to realize the opulence, the power, the politics, a world I just don't know. Well, I met, went into the Senate chambers and I met the parliamentarian, a woman. She very politely said to me, Reverend Key, we're glad you're here. I have three instructions for you before you pray. I said, okay. She said, please be brief. I said, I understand. Secondly, she said, please don't make us hold hands. <laughs> I said, there's got to be a story there somewhere. But no, I told her, I said, I'm not about to ask you to hold hands. And then she said, and this was her point, and I could feel it. She said, be non-sectarian. And I knew that was code language. I just, don't ask me. I just knew that was code. She was saying, don't use that name in here, the name Jesus. Just pray to the generic deity, say some nice words, make us feel good, and then leave. <laughs> I sat there and thought about that. You walked up to the podium. It was taller than this. And I was being introduced, and as I walked up to pray, my knees were shaking. And I don't know how to tell you this except to tell you this. By the time I got to the podium, I realized I have one assignment in this place. It does not matter what I pray for. Pray for the senator's families. Pray for the economy. Pray for 
decisions. None of that matters. Only one thing matters. In whose name do I pray? I mean, it became crystal clear. And my knees were knocking so hard, I'm sure somebody must have heard it. And I went, <clears throat> as I thought about it, because I had not even thought about it till that point. I hadn't even, I'm trying to think about, well, what do you pray for? Didn't matter. The Spirit said, are you going to mention the name? Are you going to mention the name? Then I had the thought, well, you know, if I pray to the blob God... <laughs> My prayer won't get above the ceiling, and I'm being paid $35 of hard-earned taxpayer money. I don't want to waste their prayer, their money. It's not quite how it went. But I stood there, and I said whatever I prayed, and I got to the end, and I said, in Jesus' name. And you could feel the icicles come into the room. You could feel it as I named the name. Well, I said amen. I walked down. Standing below the podium, I'd never seen him until this point, was the sergeant at arms, a big African-American Vietnam veteran standing there. I didn't even know he was there. He escorted me out of the chambers. We got into the... We got it. I love this story. We got into the lobby. The, the sergeant at arms put me in a hug like this and said, thanks, bro. <laughs> he said, you know, clergy come in this room and they say prayers, but they don't name the name. You named the name. Thanks, my brother. Isn't that good? You know you need a revival when there's evil on the throne. When people hate the name, the only name that saves. I could say more. Number three, you know you need a revival when there's famine in the land, when there's evil on the throne. You know you need a revival when there's apostasy in the church. 850 false prophets in Israel. In Israel. 850 prophets. The church in America today. I don't, I love your church. What I know of your church excites me. But let me tell you, the church in America today is in dire straits. A few years ago, I went to a pastor's conference. I was invited to speak. And it was a pastor's conference for young, trendy pastors. I mean, these guys were, were cool. And they were planting churches all across our land. I was asked to speak. Well, when I got there, I was walking down the sidewalk of Troy, New York, entering the building where the conference was, and I saw all these people on the sidewalk smoking cigars. I said, cigars? I didn't even know people smoked cigars anymore, and a lot of them, rather young people. I went on in the building, and then I discovered 
those are the church planters. <laughs> those are the church planters. Now, I have, I'm on no crusade against, against cigar smoking or being even trendy. But I am on a crusade when the culture of the world becomes the culture of the church. My Bible says worldliness is a sin, a damnable sin. You know, it's a good thing when a boat is in water. That's what boats are supposed to do. It's a bad thing when water is in the boat. Are you tracking with me? It's a good thing when the church is in the world. It's a very good thing the church is supposed to be in the world. But it's a bad thing when the world is in the church. The first full-time church I pastored was in the suburbs of Chicago. It's a was a United Methodist Church. This is long ago in a universe far away, Fox River Grove, Illinois. We went back a, for a funeral about six months ago, and I said, Katie, let's go see the, the church, the building. Drove to the church, and there on the marquee out in front of the church was a rainbow. And I said, that's the story. That's the story. You know you need revival when there's apostasy in the church. It's time for the church to stop entertaining the goats and get back to the job of feeding the sheep. If you want to say amen there, you can. You know you need a revival for, number four, when there's division in the heart. How long will you go limping between two opinions, Elijah said. If Baal is God, follow, follow Baal with all your heart. Go for it. But if the Lord is God, follow him. But this indivision in your heart is spiritual schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. It'll drive you crazy. And it's impotent. It will not bear fruit. You know you need a revival when there's division in the heart. I mean, the people of Israel, they worshiped the true God. They just also worshiped Baal. Can't we do that? No. You know, there's a rumor going around in the church today. And I'm on the warpath to destroy it and expose it for the damnable lie that it is. There's a rumor going around that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and give him most of your heart. You can't do it. You can try. But the day will come where you'll find yourself confronted by the prophetic word, how long will you limp between two opinions? If you want to worship the money God, be all in. 
If you want to worship the pleasure God, the education God, the sports God, the political God, go for it. But if the Lord is God, follow him. How long will you limp between two opinions? Many pastors today, I'm afraid, rather than calling people out of their sins, are comforting people in their sins. Jesus said, no one can be my disciple unless they renounce all that they have. Luke 14, 33. Forty-four years ago, I sat on a date with Katie, and I pulled out a diamond ring of my pocket. I won't give you all the details, but imagine if I had said to Katie in asking her to marry me, Imagine that I had said, Katie, I got an incredible proposition to make for you. If you'll marry me, I promise you, I'll give you 99% of my heart. I'll be faithful to you 364 days out of every year. Women always laugh at this quicker and louder than men do. Because they get this. There's a word for that. And it's called adultery. Marriage does not work, have you noticed? Unless you're all in. 99% may work well in math class. But let me tell you, following Jesus Christ is not math class. Following Jesus Christ is a marriage. It's a covenant. He gave all. He left heaven. He died for you. For you to give him most of your life will not work. You know you need a revival when there is division in the heart. You know you need a revival when there's famine in the land, when there's evil on the throne, when there's apostasy in the church, when there's division in the heart. Number five, you know you need a revival when there is no fire on the altar. The God who answers by fire. That's why when God shows up, there's a, something's burning. <laughs> it may be a bush. It may be Pentecost, tongues of fire. But when God shows up, things get combustible. Because the God who answers by fire is God. When you read the Bible, when you worship, when you do church stuff and there's no fire, there's no passion, there's no burning, everything is mediocre drivel. You know you need a revival. I'm almost done. Shall I repeat it? You know you need a revival. I said there were six indicators. You know you need a revival when there's famine in the land, when there's evil on the throne, 
when there's apostasy in the church, when there's division in my heart, your heart, when there's no fire on the altar. Are you ready for the last one? You know you need a revival when you think this sermon is for someone else. I mean, ever since I started, you've been looking around the room saying, boy, I hope so-and-so is here. They really need to hear this. That may be the surest indicator. That may be the surest indicator that God needs to revive your heart and mine. You know, there, I don't know what movies you watch as a family, but our family loves to watch the movie Princess Bride. It's just a fun movie to watch. There's one scene I've got to tell you, and I'm, I'm done with this. Fezzik the Giant and Inigo Montoya, their friend Wesley is dead, or they think he's dead. <laughs> and they take him to Miracle Max. Oh, this just, yes, some of you know, this is just so good. They've got him over their shoulder, and they lug him in and plop him on the table of Miracle Max so Miracle Max can fix him. And they ask Miracle Max, is he dead? Miracle Max picks up his arm, you know, and just and it drops. And he said, uh, no, he's mostly dead. And then Max says this, there's a big difference between being mostly dead and dead. That's what I want to say to the church. Some churches are dead. A lot of churches are mostly dead. <laughs> and that's what revival is all about. There's a big difference. This is what God's Word says. If my people, big if, if my people who are called by my name, that's that Jesus word, will do four things. Will humble yourself will pray, will turn from your sins, and will seek my face, not my hand. I read that promise for 40 years before I realized I'm usually looking for God's hand to do something. No, if you'll seek his face, Oh, my goodness. God says, if you do those four things, humble yourself, pray, seek my face, turn from sin, God says, cross my heart, hope to die. This is my prayer. This is my promise. I'll hear that prayer. I'll forgive your sin, and I will heal your land. 
Lord, we pray this morning that you would send the fire, that you would have mercy. Lord, we recognize the famine in our land for hearing the words of God. Lord, we recognize the evil in places of power and influence that is on the throne. Lord, we realize the apostasy that is so characteristic of so much of the church today. Lord, we realize the division in our own hearts. The problem is not just out there, Lord. The problem is me. Lord, we realize there's no fire on the altar. We go through the motions. We do the stuff. But there's no fire. Lord, would you have mercy on us, on our families, on our church, on our nation, on our world? I'm going to invite the musicians to come. You're here. Yeah, just lead us in something. If Let's have a few moments of at least just silence right where you sit. If you'd like to kneel where you sit, that's very appropriate. If you'd like to come and kneel at the altar. But this is where I wanted to begin our four days together. Lord, revive us again. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Would you just respond to God? You're going to lead us and then uh, thank you.